Welcome back to Love at First Screening, the show where I, rom-com enthusiast Madison, introduce my friend, co-host, and resident genre skeptic Chelsea. That's me. To all the feel-good. Cliché. Romantic. Questionable. Hilarious. Occasionally humorous. Films she's never wanted to watch. So Chelsea, walking into this, allegedly we are just re-watching a movie that we've already watched according to reviews that we have read or statements that have been made about how similar this movie is to Roman Holiday. I assume we will discuss that, uh, but what was it like watching the same movie twice? Surprisingly different. Yeah, right? I was watching and I was like, that thread is so loose. I'm really surprised they decided to tug on it. Just completely unraveled. Also, I want to go ahead and get the drink out of the way. Just so I can make a pun. By all means. Today, we have two martinis. Get it? Because they're going to have tea or tea related. And they're martinis. And also, I did that because he's just constantly offering her tea throughout this film. I think that if someone offered me tea that many times, I would just start throwing the cups. I'm not a tea person, admittedly. Are you Ted Lasso? I don't go as far as Ted Lasso, but it's pretty close. I have a few teas that I like, but that's about it. I do enjoy tea. I'm more of a coffee person, but tea has a, like a separate place in my heart than coffee does. Like we we often compare them, mm-hmm. but I don't actually think that they're comparable drinks. I think they're separate. I would agree. I actually remember my I think it was my freshman year of college. I was in a world literature class and I had to read The Fall of Troy, basically, was what I was reading. And I had made myself, because I had a sore throat that I didn't want to get worse. And so I was drinking tea religiously. And I thought the tea that I had was decaf. It was not. So I had the equivalent of like 12 cups of caffeinated tea back to back to back. Like I was just drinking basically a gallon of tea, hot tea by myself. And I was reading The Fall of Troy, listening to the Braveheart soundtrack while on the greatest caffeine high of my entire life. And it was honestly incredible and I ended up telling my professor I was like yeah this ended up being extra cool because I was just like soaring on a caffeine high listening to the Braveheart soundtrack while reading this and she goes well drugs will do that (laughs) it was like oh (laughs) so that's my story with tea uh but to spill the tea about our drinks this week I have two The first actually involves tea. It is an Earl Grey martini, and it's an ounce and a half. I'm actually giving measurements this time, so you know I did the research. It's an ounce and a half of Earl Grey infused gin, or you could do vodka. But why would you? 
Uh, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, freshly squeezed because we're not peasants. An ounce of simple syrup. An egg white. That just makes it look frothy and pretty. You don't really need the egg white if you're opposed for any reason. And then you garnish with a sugar rim and a lemon twist. I really love this editorializing that you're doing. <laughs> you're so welcome. So the next one is actually something that I quite enjoy. It's a very basic shot that you can get at really any bar. You just walk in and order this. They'll know what you're talking about. But I like this isn't actually a martini either. It has no martini components. Uh, But what you can do is you can put it in a martini glass and top it with extra Sprite or club soda if you want to stretch it out a bit more because it's traditionally a shot. And that is a green tea shot that you can, you know, pretend can be a martini. And so you take a half ounce of Irish whiskey, uh, usually Jameson, a half ounce of peach schnapps, which I think would be disgusting on its own, half ounce of uh, sour mix, and then you just put in a splash of Sprite or you can do more to kind of stretch it out. So those are your drink options. Great. Something for a variety of people. Correct. And if you don't want to drink alcohol, you can always find a dupe online for Starbucks's peach green tea, like iced tea drink that they have, because that's pretty good. But we don't really want to give our money to Starbucks because they're union busters. But also, I desperately want to try their new cold brew, cold foam coffee with the cinnamon and the caramel. But I haven't yet because I'm trying to hold strong and not support union busters. Madison, I wanted to ask you, what's your best celebrity story? Wow, I don't really have any because I've just never been in the presence of greatness much. But I will say that there was one time that I was at a con and I was like two feet from Jason Momoa right after he kind of hit stardom for Game of Thrones. And his eyebrows do look that cool in person. Great. Yeah. And then I also waited in line for an hour in the rain when I was like 16 years old to get a book signed by David Levathon. I don't know if he's really considered a celebrity because I'm pretty sure that most of the people listening would not recognize him by name. Maybe his work, but not by name. But yeah, so that's it. Do you do you know more celebrities? Because I know none. My go-to celebrity story... My go-to celebrity fact is that the first funeral I ever went to was attended by a household name celebrity. <laughs> what a way to meet them. Yeah. So uh, the first funeral I ever went to, uh, John Travolta was there. Oh, in mm-hmm. what era of John Travolta would this have been in? Do you remember? Um, This was probably 2014, maybe. Okay. 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's... What a terrible way to meet John Travolta. Yeah, well, and I didn't even technically meet him, right? Because it was his, like, friend's funeral. So I didn't want to say hi because, you know, not the time. Yeah, I was about to say, you can't really walk up and be like... I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for your loss. I really enjoyed you in Greece. 
So believe me, while I, that might have not been my move, that was a move many people had. Um, It was also really interesting to watch how many people like stood up to speak at the funeral that tried to somehow involve him, even though I don't think they had ever met him previously. Because both him and his wife, uh, who has since passed away, spoke at the funeral. But yeah, afterwards, they invited other people that were there to like share stories about the guy. And I I didn't really know the guy whose funeral it was. I was there with a bunch of my coworkers. It was a student's father. Mm. And so I I went, you know, in support of the student. I didn't know him the guy that died um but i I watched all these people get up to tell these stories and they were like i was like grasping at straws to try and figure out how to wedge john travolta into a story yeah that where he clearly didn't belong because for whatever reason people were just like i gotta talk about john travolta however after the funeral was over and we were out in the lobby uh, I did back up into John Travolta and then p- apologize profusely. And he was like, no, no, it's okay. So I did interact with him, but it was not intentional. So after you bumped into him, did you like get chills? Were they multiplying? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that is... <laughs> So yeah, that's um that's my that's my celebrity moment for you. I love that so much. I guess I'm focusing really heavily on actors. I've met some musicians, but they're still relatively small musicians. Like I met the entirety of Colony House when they were still a really small band. But the only like cool thing that came out of that was I was talking about going and seeing one of their shows and mentioned like they're just super genuinely nice and cool guys. And I was like, yeah, they're the sons of a Christian musician, Stephen Curtis Chapman, the the drummer and the singer, his kids, and Nicole, who you guys will hear from potentially in the future. She was like, oh, I know Stephen Curtis. I went to a concert of his back when I was in school. And I'm like, yeah, that's I guess it was just proximity thing. Anyway, your story is way better than mine could ever be. I just saw Jason Momoa's eyebrows in a close proximity, you got to see John Travolta grieve. Yeah, sure. That's the takeaway from this story. <laughs> I can't get over people. Okay, tell me that no one tried to like take pictures with him. Oh, nope, they did. Absolutely. No, they did. no. Okay. Absolutely, they did. We're going to take a quick second here to discuss funeral etiquette. <laughs> if there is someone of uh, notoriety, Especially someone that, one, just don't take pictures at funerals. I feel like that's kind of weird. Like, don't take selfies at funerals. I feel like that's just a really obvious number one. Uh, Number two, don't take selfies with a stranger, even if they are of, especially if they are of notoriety. At uh, I'm sorry, I'm still trying to grasp what kind of person you have to be to ignore the gravity of the situation you're in, to be like, this is my moment to shine with john travolta well and i also feel like it's like the thing with car accidents like once someone does it everyone you have a whole bunch of other people that do it yeah that's another psa don't stare at car wrecks stare at your life instead it's the same thing just much slower all right well now that i feel in need 
of one of our martinis for this <laughs> movie that we'll be discussing. Uh, I feel like I should tell you, Chelsea, that hopefully up to this point, you've watched the movie Notting Hill. I believe I have. Yeah. I'm really surprised you can remember it because, well, we'll get into that. So to refresh your memory and everyone else's, Notting Hill is essentially a story about a perfect meet-cute that Chelsea kind of introduced between the everyday person played by Hugh Grant, William Thacker, bookstore owner, which I also want to talk about what kind of bookstore he specifically owns later, because that was an additional quirk to a very classic trope. And famous actress Julia Roberts. Oh, wait, no, in this she's Anna Scott. But she's Julia Roberts, but she's Anna Scott. William Thacker is a bookseller who specifically owns a travel bookshop in the Notting Hill district in West London. Uh, he shares a house with his eccentric Welsh friend, Spike. And one day he's minding the store and in strolls Anna Scott, a, uh, according to this summary that I'm paraphrasing from, they want you to know that she's a lovely and well-known actress from the United States. Uh, who's in London working on a film. She buys a book. She's polite. He's kind of starstruck. And that's where it ends. Except it doesn't because he runs out a few minutes later to buy some juice. And coming back, he spills it all over her blouse. Absolutely mortified, he invites her to come back to his flat where she can get cleaned up. It's just right across the way. So this isn't actually a horror film where he abducts the hot actress, Misery style. It could have been, but it's not. And right before she leaves, they kiss. Well, officially leaves. She leaves and then she comes back to get her, her bag. And then they kiss just once. And he thinks that's it. And then she comes back and is like, hey, maybe we should go out some more. Well, first she calls and Spike picks up and takes the message and only decides to relay it like three days later. And... He pretends to be a writer for Horse and Hound because he's shown up during a press event for her upcoming movie. All of this goes on. They start dating. Then it turns out she's dating a Baldwin. And then she leaves and they break up. And they're, it's just very on again, off again sort of relationship until she has the great line, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. And then they end up together and everything's happy. I feel like I don't need to go super deep into really any of this because it that's what it is. It's will they, won't they for two hours and I think four minutes. So Chelsea, I think you were incredibly bored watching this. I think you were bored to tears. And while you may have liked the actors and while there were some really funny moments... And some really interesting moments, dialogue-wise, that I want to get into. Um, I This is not something you're going to watch again. It's not something I'll watch again. It had its moments. There were moments where I went, huh, okay. But mostly I just wondered what Hugh Grant saw in Julia Roberts. Yes, correct. Because unlike Vivian in Pretty Woman, she is not very charismatic. She's very quiet and reserved, and I don't really feel like I know anything about her, mm -hmm. which is fine for somebody to be quiet and reserved, but 
I don't know anything about her, so I don't understand why someone would want to be in a relationship with her, especially one that comes at the risk of being photographed at all times. Yeah, exactly. I think that Hugh Grant is very funny in this movie, but there were definitely moments where I just zoned out because I it was not entertaining. Yeah, I would agree with that. This one, not to jump ahead or anything like that, this one's just not one of my favorites. Like I said, I think Julia Roberts' character is just pretty flat. She's not very well written, in my opinion. I mean, like we said before, Julia Roberts can act her whole ass off. So it's. I don't think it was an issue of her performance. I think she just, it was a really underdeveloped character that she was trying to bring to the screen. Hugh Grant, he's Hugh Grant. That's all I have to say. I love Hugh Grant. I love him. But yeah, this one's not one of my favorites. But to jump into what I did enjoy about it, the first thing that I do want to talk about is the fact that his bookshop is specifically a travel bookshop. Which I didn't actually know was a thing, if I'm being completely honest. I didn't know that there were whole bookshops dedicated to just, like, travel guides and memoirs about travel and advice books about going to different places. How can that be lucrative in Notting Hill? Well, I mean, people in the UK are, people in Europe in general, are more well-traveled than people in the United States. Yeah, And also, this is the 90s, so they don't have Google Maps. Yeah, that's fair. That's very fair. Everything's pre-Brexit, so they can actually travel freely. Yeah. Rip. Fuck the Tories. I can also hate abroad conservatives. (laughs) (laughs) No, and I was thinking about it, too. I felt like, obviously, the town looked beautiful, and it's actually a hot spot for filming a bunch of different things. But in the movie, they portray it as like very tiny sort of hole in the wall town. And it kind of reminded me of this one Noah Kahn lyric where he's like, um, this town is such great motivation for anyone who wants to move the fuck away. And then the lyric goes on, but it's not as pertinent. But I feel like maybe that's why his travel shop could be such a wonderful place and such a lucrative business although it isn't they talk many times about how it is absolutely floundering but in terms of the what we see as the initial meet cute because this is a rom-com podcast we have to discuss the meet cute what did you think about him holding it together so well in her presence not trying to be all starstruck even though he knew exactly who she was He played it so cool and then spilled his entire beverage down her shirt, then absolutely freaked out and by the end of it was offering her anything he had in his fridge. That seems like a natural progression, to be quite honest with you. (laughs) Because step one, we have his place of business. What is going to be good for his business if not a celebrity shopping there so he's doing his damnedest he's telling her not to buy a book that he doesn't think is very good Mm -hmm. he's recommending a better book to her but then you know the customer's always right so when she does buy the book he says not to buy he's just saying you know what actually on second thought you know this is probably a good book yeah you know it doesn't have any of those charming also it's it's hugh grant 
like floundering for for words which is just very funny like oh it doesn't have any of those charming kebab stories and right and so then she leaves and he could have told his co-worker right away that anna scott the biggest celebrity was just in their bookstore but instead he's like no i'm gonna play it cool i'm gonna protect her privacy because who's gonna believe me anyway so then he volunteers to go out and get this juice and he's not paying attention because he's on the street he runs into this woman it just so happens to be anna scott he's dumped juice all over her so now he feels like a big idiot so mm-hmm. he's got to try and wipe her off. But she's like, please don't touch me because <laughs> you're the a stranger. Response. And then he's like, all right, I can take, you know, we can go back to my house. It's just over there, which I'm also like, if you're a woman, you're not going back to a man's house. Like, I th- actually think it would have been better if he had offered her to come back to the bookshop, like, because they have a bathroom in the bookshop. That would have yeah. made more sense. Or if he lived above the bookshop or something. Because that's more of a like public place. I was a little, it was a little odd to me that she would go to his house. But okay, fine. So she goes to his house behind the little blue door. And then he's basically just offering her everything. Because also his place is a wreck. Because yeah. he's depressed. His wife has left him. And he lives with a very eccentric Welshman. So it's not exactly the kind of place that you're going to bring a girl back to. Especially not one of Anna Scott's caliber but nevertheless he does and so naturally in trying to recorrect for this mistake is to be like you can have anything that you want what can I give you yeah can I give you honey soaked apricots I have apricots they're soaked in honey they don't taste like apricot they taste like honey to briefly speak on Spike which we already know we have a natural fondness for characters named Spike uh, on this podcast (laughs) but The scene where Hugh Grant is helping him pick out a shirt to wear for his date. I am, according to my friend Lily, I am the queen of the quirky t-shirt. You know, the random reference to TV shows or music. I I wear a lot of band tees, that sort of shit. I want to know how he acquired his collection of shirts that he had. Where did he buy these? I think he made them. You know what? I hope he did. That would be even better. I absolutely think he made them. I Yeah, if it was modern day, that character would have a cricket. And he'd just be cranking them out. He'd be like, he'd have one that just says, I saw Anna Scott in the bath. And he'd just wear it proudly. Babette ate oatmeal, you know? Babette ate oatmeal. Exactly. But... I love how absolutely fine he was sitting there listening to Hugh Grant, basically calling him the dumbest person alive on the phone. And he's not arguing. He doesn't look put out. He's just like, yeah, that's fine. He, he just shakes the haters off. He's just himself. He is so unbothered by literally everything. He's also kind of disgusting. Oh, he's absolutely disgusting. He's like one of the most disgusting humans and he's not bothered by anything. He has cockroach energy. Like it doesn't (laughs) matter how many times you step on him, he's not going to break. But also he can get into the the grossest crevices on the planet. That is like. Yep, that is a perfect way to put it. Absolutely perfect. 
Although I will say that Hugh Grant in this also has cockroach energy when it comes to romantic relationships because he will let himself be crushed over and over and over again. And he simply will not perish. I mean, how many times did they essentially break up? A lot. I think that was my issue with this movie was the back and forth. I'm like, oh my god, just make a decision. I'm not... I, don't, I didn't like the wishy-washiness. And actually, I want it noted that my dad, when I told him we were going to be watching this, I he said, and I quote, I fucking hate that movie. So fucking wishy-washy. You know what else I hate? The Notebook. So that was a little added bonus for you there. All right. Well, I have yeah. seen The Notebook. So we don't need to watch that again. Thank God. You know what? I'm making a vow right now. We will watch random bottom of the walmart bargain bin dvd movies before we watch the notebook on this podcast i would like to express my undying love of britain's premier equestrian journalist (laughs) william thacker i i love when you commit to a bit Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what is being done when he, you know, he is invited to Anna Scott's hotel room at the Ritz. She's thinking this press event is going to be over. It's not. It's in full swing when he arrives. He arrives. There's this other guy lurking in the hallway who happens to be another journalist. And I definitely thought he was a stalker. Uh, or I just think get... it was like her manager or like a PR person or something. Nope. I definitely thought he was like, a stalker that knew she was staying at the hotel and just was going to follow him in. But turns out it's a press guy. And then they get these little handouts upon arrival. And they're like, what publication are you from? And he does the classic thing in any sitcom when you are in the wrong place and you're supposed to be someone that you're clearly not, which is just (laughs) to look around the room to come up with an identity. And he sees a issue of horse and hound so that's the magazine he says he's from why horse and hound is interested in a movie about space we'll never know but nevertheless he's there and so then he gets into the room with her but of course her manager or somebody's there and she can't uh have an open conversation so he proceeds to ask her questions about the movie but they just (laughs) consist of were there any horses in the movie or hounds, our, equal, our readers are equally interested in both species. <laughs> and she goes, it's in space. And he goes, oh, I guess like the, <laughs> the dynamics of a horse in space would be difficult because of the suit and stuff. <laughs> and he's like, do you wish that there had been more horses? <laughs> Either way. But then it gets better because... No sooner does he leave the room with Anna Scott with, uh, you know, no hope of of a date at that moment. Um, But then he gets put into a press room with the rest of the cast of this film where he proceeds to ask similar asinine questions about (laughs) horses. And hounds. And hounds. Oh, my God. And then he's like, well, could there be a horse in your next movie? And she goes, it's on a submarine. It's truly, truly incredible. I loved it. From start to finish, I was laughing so hard. 
Because then it circles back to the big, you know, climactic scene of him getting her back for the final time. And he goes into the press event that she's at at that point for another film. Again, pretending to be a reporter from Horse and Out. He's like, I'm committed. I'm going to learn about these horses. I'm going to learn about these hounds. Or at least you think I'm going to. It's his go-to undercover identity is a reporter for the horse and hound. It's so good. It's so good. Actually, speaking Um, of that last moment, when they go into the hotel, the guy asks him for credentials and he shows him a Blockbuster membership, which is so (laughs) funny. Because I feel like that joke has actually gotten funnier with the fact that Blockbuster doesn't exist anymore. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I also loved how he did end up getting in there, which I want to call um, weaponized disability, which I think should be more of a thing in real life and in film. Someone's being a dick to you or trying to stop you. She's in a wheelchair. She should be able to go anywhere. There's already enough places that are not wheelchair or disability friendly. So you know what? Don't stop them anywhere else. That's my hot take. Also, fuck stairs. I have a fear of stairs, Chelsea. I don't know if you know this. I did not know this. Hate having to go downstairs. Going upstairs? That's fine. Going downstairs? Mm -mm. Don't like it. I know what you're thinking. When did you learn this about yourself? Thank you for asking. I learned this about myself when I went to Washington, (laughs) D.C. What a great time to find out you don't like stairs when there's trillions of them. I do want to sort of pivot to the scene where she's first at dinner with them. Oh my god, yes. I loved that scene because it was so quirky and it perfectly balanced absolute heartbreak and pain and then just immediately undercut it with comedy all over a competition for the last brownie. I think this is something that British TV and film does that I don't think American film. I I think it has a it's a difference to do with comedy stylings. Mm-hmm. But this like really dark sense of humor that the Brits seem to have is not something we Yanks, to borrow their terminology, <laughs> share. So I I definitely think like this is a scene that you just would never see in an American film. Oh, yeah. No way. And and to give context for anyone listening to this, but who's not watched the movie or who may not recall this scene, they're essentially sitting around after dinner uh, during dessert. There's one brownie left and they go around the table and essentially discuss who has a worst life. Uh, who is the most unfortunate at the table. And it's like, oh, I'm, you know, shit at my job or unlucky in love or I'm poor or I am paralyzed and infertile or, you know, and it just goes around and around and they don't want to let Anna take a turn because she's a millionaire actress who is like the hottest actress on the scene right now and they're like what problems could you have and she's like I don't know you know give me 
10 years and my body will betray me because it my beauty will fade and everyone will forget me and realize that I never had acting skills in the first place and I was relying on something superficial that will inevitably fade with time and then I'll be completely irrelevant and someone who was once famous and now no one ever thinks of and they're like well, that doesn't earn you the fucking brownie, now does it? The whole concept of bringing a celebrity to a dinner party and not telling, yeah, unexpectedly bringing a celebrity to a dinner party is so funny. And how has this not been replicated since this movie? Because this is comedy gold, to be quite frank with you. The best part was the balance of the sister who the dinner is for, it's her birthday, is like, we're, I've always felt a connection with you. I've always thought that we could be best friends and like follows her into the bathroom and is just in awe of her constantly. And then you put her across from the, I think he was like a stockbroker or something. One of their guy friends who just does not recognize her at all for the majority of the evening and is like, Oh, you're an actor? Yeah, I I have some friends who do like community theater work and I mean they might get a grand, two grand a year on their acting if that. I mean it's just it's just not a way to live, you know? What did you get on your last project? And she's like 15 million dollars. <laughs> Which apparently is how much she got paid for this movie. I want to be on the Julia Roberts scholarship fund. Yeah. Julia, if you're if you're listening, can you sponsor our podcast or maybe just our lives? We will create a Julia Roberts podcast where we only cover your work and we only say nice things about you. <laughs> it's worth a shot. This is our second Julia Roberts film on this podcast. Exactly. Pretty Woman last season. And this is also our second Hugh Grant. We did music and lyrics last season Mm -hmm. i love hugh grant i'll do any hugh grant movie you want me to cover and don't i know that some of you bitches out there are gonna come for me and send me an email or a dm or a text or will just confront me in person and be like actually he's a really problematic person and here's what i don't want to hear it and i'll tell you why chelsea because am i in love with hugh grant the man no I'm in love with Hugh Grant, the actor. And nothing is going to tarnish that. <laughs> I love when they leave and there's like a five second and then the they freak out inside. But I love that they showed you the outside that you could hear all of them. Yeah. And he plays it off like, oh, they always do that when I leave. It always hurts my feelings. I've asked them not to. I will say... There was one moment of like cinematography that I really loved in this movie. And there is one element about the sound of this movie that I absolutely hated. Which would you like to hear first? Let's 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 go positive first. Perfect. The scene where they're showing the passage of time where they're apart and he's just continuing to walk but you see that the people around him shift, the season shifts. He stays the same throughout the whole thing. So it's really giving the idea of 
him going through the motions. The world is moving. Life is happening around him and he's not engaging with any of it. I thought that it was a really profound moment of grief in a really well-presented way because it's not in your face. It's not It's not the scene from New Moon where Kristen Stewart is just depressed <laughs> in a chair. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. <laughs> That's for the Twilight fans. It's not that. Because, I mean, he is, he's still going on with life. It's just that it holds no appeal. He has no real connection to what's going on around him. And I thought that was, it was just a really beautiful representation. One, to allow time to pass really quickly in the movie. But also to show how much their breakup just really hurt him. Because I don't think he fully understood why it happened in the first place. Because he was too busy trying to mansplain how it wasn't a big deal to her. Alright, and so what's the sound that just... The soundtrack of this movie was horrible. And so disconjointed with everything that was going on. This was a movie where you should have had a lot more instrumental scores. And they just break in with the weirdest fucking music selection. Oh, it was horrible. You get like 80s soft rock, love ballads, and maybe like some Roy Orbison or something like that. Like, what the fuck? Who decided, who was watching this and you went, you know what? This is perfect. And they also went on for too long. It's like they were trying to build this romantic swell with these ballads. And it see it made it so cheesy, actually undercut what the acting had set the scene up for because there's like, and now feel emotion. It's like, I already was. You took me out of it with like fucking air supply or whatever the hell was playing in the background. Shall we discuss how this compares to Roman Holiday? I would love to. It does not. Yeah, it's... It's a very loose thread, as you said earlier. Um, I eventually, while watching this, just had to give up on trying to look for similarities because it was just going to drive me up the wall because I couldn't find any. How is this a modern retelling of Roman Holiday? The closest I could get to like the sneaking away aspect was when the nude photos and video of her leaked. And he went to, or she went to his house to kind of lay low. But even still, that, I mean, that was more like going to someone for a semblance of security more than anything. I mean, the main conflict in Roman Holiday is that she wasn't able to, like, her like her life was very restricted. And while, yes, a celebrity's life in terms of walking around on the streets is restricted. If you're a face, everybody knows and people are going to stop you. Like you're not going to have a regular day out on the town, but we didn't really see that conflict in her. I also think this movie is really interesting because this is very much framed from the male leads perspective, as opposed Mm -hmm. to the female leads. 
And part of me wonders, is that why Julia Roberts's character is so uninteresting? Are we so used to the rom-com form being that the romantic lead that you spend a lot of time with is super interesting and the other one is just kind of a bland wheat thin, I think is what we call Richard Gere's character in Pretty Woman. That sounds uh, right. And we're just not used to the woman being the the bland wheat thin. I also think that's, I mean, that's an excellent point. I completely agree. I think that it's almost like we can't have two well-established love interests because then you can't superimpose yourself on one or both of them as easily. But I also do wonder if an element of why she seemed underdeveloped was that a huge part of her character arc was how fiercely private she was. Everything that she did that was related to press release was very polished and coordinated ahead of time. Like her relationship with the Baldwin jump scare. Any Baldwin is a jump scare in my book, by the way. That extends to... Baldwin offspring. I think that there was definitely opportunities in which you could have taken a character that was supposed to be very private and like kind of open them up in places where they feel more safe. And Mm -hmm. those could be moments in which these two characters are connecting. But instead, she just continues to feel very bland and it's just very plain. Everything's very plain. Yeah, because I don't, I mean, I'm pretty sure that her story is that she became an actress as an adult, right? Like she, or at least near adult, it's not like she was a child star where you would have that sort of unusual life and eventually fierce privacy a lot sooner so she could have told a lot more stories about her childhood or her personal interests what she likes to do what she doesn't like you know silly shit that she got into and you could easily do that not in not when they're first seeing each other but when they get back together that would be the perfect time to do that honestly i think this story as a roman holiday retelling works better if she were a child actress Because then her breaking into, like, her going to this family dinner is not just her getting to spend time with him, but also her getting to experience what this regular family dinner is like. Because Mm -hmm. she would not have had that as a child. That's not something she would have been accustomed to. I'm not saying that this film had to be a Roman holiday retelling, but I do think that would have worked better. I completely agree. I think that if they had set her up for a lack of normalcy way earlier, it would have made the story make a lot more sense and would explain why she's really fiercely protective of the people in her life that are not used to being in the circles and the experience that she has grown accustomed to. Also, can we just talk about how while I love shows that feature young people, because I feel like we need examples of fun media in a way that young people can connect with. I'm just really, really anti-child star. Yeah. 
Like, do I love Stranger Things? Yeah, sure do. Do I think that maybe being in a hit show like that has irreparably changed the projection of those actors' lives? Likely not for the super better. Yeah, but that's neither here nor there. Just go listen to Amanda Montel's podcast, Sounds Like a Cult, where they talk about the cult of child stars. May I propose a better version of this movie? Yes, please. I want a sapphic version. Of the <laughs> you always want a sapphic version. No, but specifically for one reason. And that is because imagine Hugh Grant's haircut on a lesbian. And tell me that's not like just the most incredible thing you've imagined. Because the whole time I was watching this movie, I was just like, yep. Is that not sort of Cameron Esposito? Yes, exactly. That is Cameron Esposito's haircut. <laughs> That's exactly Cameron Esposito's haircut. Okay, so Cameron Esposito is going to take Hugh Grant's role in this, which actually could, you could do this really, really well. Because obviously, sapphic romances are only allowed to be about coming out, yeah. as we've learned. Yeah, we know. Um, so you could... Okay, look, basically you want the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo without all of the husbands, but also with uh, Celia not being an actress as well. Sorry for the spoiler of anyone who hasn't read Evelyn Hugo. No, look, my my main my main thing was just that his haircut belonged on a lesbian, mm-hmm. so. I think it could really work, though, because the breakup could be even a little bit less focused on you're just a normal person who doesn't understand the gravity of the limelight and also potentially introduce a thing of the press can't know I'm gay well yeah I think that there's a lot of a lot of material here for privacy being a measure of like real safety Mm mm-hmm for a celebrity and so if you have this very funny nonchalant owns a bookstore lesbian that's like happens to run into this you know and then also we can instead of having this gross cockroach roommate we can just have like i don't know like a really fabulous non-binary peacock personality like why you know what am i, I mean? just pick Titus from Kimmy Schmidt. I mean, yeah, like somebody who is loud and proud and just does not fit any sort of mold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is a very dangerous personality to be seen with. Kind of like think of like America's sweetheart. And then mm-hmm. you have this like roguish London boy, B-O-I, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Oh my god, I just, I feel like it would be such a, it would be so good. Should I just write this? I think we should just write this. I think I actually really want to write this. I think you and I are destined to write sapphic versions of crappy rom-coms and make them so much better. I will be like Christina Lauren, but will be Chelsea Madison. Perfect. I love that. It's perfect. Um, Christina Lauren wrote The Unhoneymooners, right? Yes. That was a good book. 
I've only read their I read the YA one called Autobiography mm. that they did. Although I do actually I will say that the Unhoneymooners is one of the rom coms that I read this year where I don't think that the characters should have gotten together, but that's that's another story for another time. We can have a bonus episode or a series of bonus episodes where we talk about books that are rom coms. Great. Because who wants to read Chelsea? Well, I guess we should determine whether or not this is a rom-com. It is. Don't worry. I have confirmed. (laughs) No, I actually do have some qualms with this. So, Chelsea, how do we determine that this is a rom-com? Well, Madison, we have a very scientific set of criteria that we judge all these movies by. Three questions that we ask to determine whether they are or are not rom-coms. So, number one, do they date? Are there moments in which we see these characters connecting and growing closer emotionally? They do date. I I agree. Yeah. And actually, to talk briefly about one of the date scenes, the date scene where they overhear the group of men uh, making really lewd and disgusting commentary about her like she is not a person and she is. And Hugh Grant gets up to sort of confront one. He does it in the nicest, most polite way. I would not have approached it like that. I would have been a bit more guns a-blazing. I'm really sad that she didn't just throw drinks at all of them. Or take the tablecloth and just like be like, I'll show you a trick that I can do. And just actually toss all the food on top of them. I would have loved that. But instead it was much more tame. But yes, they do date. So number two is, did we laugh? I laughed. Yeah. Hugh Hugh Grant bumbling about horses and hounds. <sighs> That's my favorite thing about Hugh Grant's acting style, specifically in rom-coms, but just in general. He has that, that bumbling, stumbling, stuttery kind of style that makes him seem both sort of Usually it's like a combination of humility and intelligence at the same time. I just love it. If I can just have that in real life, don't worry about it. He has this kind of like, this is going to sound like a diss, but it's not. He has this Disney Channel quality to him. Yes. (laughs) In terms of comedy, in that it's like a scene that was written for the Disney Channel. And yet somehow it's like charming that an adult is saying these lines and I can't really make heads or tails of it because I think if it was a different actor you wouldn't find it as charming no it's just the certain charisma that he has it doesn't seem put upon it it seems just very genuine and very natural in his dialogue style that I think others can't really quite achieve because it doesn't come as naturally to them All right, so time for the truth. Is love in the driver's seat? Is romantic love what is propelling this story forward? Look, yes, but I don't think I like them together. Okay, well, that's a separate question. Yeah. What we're asking is in the plot that we have, is romantic love what is propelling everything forward? We can get into whether or not we liked them later. I mean, yeah, I think without the back and forth, you wouldn't have any story 
at all. I mean, the point of the story goes from meet cute to come together to fall apart, to come together to fall apart. And then the dramatic moment where she bears her soul, he still turns her down and then realizes that he's an idiot, chases after her, they live happily ever after. Yeah, I agree with you. That's the whole point of this film is the relationship between the two of them, them being drawn to each other and like you said falling apart and being drawn back together and i do want to say in terms of the surprising part so he enters this story as a divorcee did you catch who his ex-wife is i have a feeling you're gonna tell me it's someone that i'm gonna then tell you it's not okay i was under the assumption that his ex-wife was the the woman, I can't remember her character's name, and I don't know the actress's name, the woman in the wheelchair. No, that's not his no? ex-wife. He says there's only two other women that he's loved. His ex-wife, who has gone off. Okay. And then the woman that married his best friend. Okay, see, somehow I conflated that in my mind. Maybe it's because I zoned out for 70% of this movie. Probably. That clears a lot of stuff up because I thought that was just like a weird mention that they never went back to and it explains why they never went back to it because it wasn't a thing in the first place. Okay, my problem with Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts characters getting together in the end and you could say sure that it's partially resolved by her speech of I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her which is admittedly a great line. That doesn't solve any of the conflict about the reason why they broke up in the first place. Yeah. He is still not understanding the intensity of her life. And again, maybe it's just because her character is so flat. I don't really see what he gets other than the relationship itself. I don't know. I just feel like none of the complications that broke them up after the second round ever got resolved. No, they don't. And that's why this is not my favorite rom-com, Chelsea. I think that this is one of those rom-coms that the writers just got lost and then just didn't bother to find their way home. They just drew a different map on top of the map they were already working with to like <laughs> find the X faster, which is not satisfying. And I will say too that I have seen some little blurbs and take them as you will that maybe the reason why was because Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts didn't get along apparently behind the scenes they did not have the same chemistry as they did on screen I think what she's really in love with and don't get me wrong Hugh Grant's character in this is pretty much the heterosexual female gaze He's a nice, soft, effeminate man who's kind of hot and smart and says nice things and looks at you like you're a goddess. That's what everyone wants, right? But I think what she really wants from him is just the normalcy of his life. It's a longing that she has. So I think that's the other reason why I don't necessarily buy that she's super into him. I think she's super into the life that he represents that she can't have. I would agree. I think that she longs for, like she says at the dinner party, she's been living this life for a decade. She's 
been on a diet for 10 years. She can't go anywhere without, you know, people photographing her, her, you know, anytime she has a breakup, it gets plastered all over the papers as if it's entertainment. She's essentially not a real person to anybody in the world. She is a character in their life. So when she comes into this man's life and she sees how normal it is, when she sees, you know, the average Joe struggles and but also like the warmth and the friendship, that's something that she doesn't have. Her life is very polished. Her life is very is filled with press. Her life is filled with needing to be on all the time. Otherwise the wrong moment will be photographed. Yeah. And then she seeks him out after the initial breakup when he finds out that she's been dating a Baldwin the whole time, which ugh. this is really just, this podcast is not brought to you by the Baldwins. <laughs> <laughs> but I, the moment when, you know, she, when all the press are outside, not only is it just super invasive privacy, but it's also just not safe because she's the biggest movie star in the world. She definitely has stalkers and shit who are just waiting for the press to reveal her location. Not to bring it up again, but I did listen to Prince Harry's memoir. <laughs> and But one of the things that he talks about is when he had joined the military he began his tour in i think it was iraq and had to be pulled out not just for his safety but the safety of his squad because the british press wouldn't stop releasing information about where he was so he had an automatic target on his back because he's royalty in a war zone on a military base and so anyone around him as well is automatically in danger and how disappointed he was because he was doing that to serve his country and he couldn't even do that because how voracious the British media was and she makes comment to the fact that it's horrible that this story broke while she was in Britain because their press in particular their tabloid system in particular is voracious well Chelsea overall I mean this is just it's just rom-com it, it is. It's a rom-com. The second question is, how watchable was it, Madison? Well, Chelsea, to tell you how watchable it was, I would have to tell you how I decide if it's watchable. How we decide if it's watchable. And we do that in a way similar to how real estate companies and websites determine how walkable a proper piece of property is, how well-located it is near amenities uh, like restaurants, shopping centers, public libraries, that sort of thing. We rank ours similarly on a scale of one to five, with one being that you're stranded in the desert. This movie left you nowhere, feeling nothing except dehydration. Second, Backroads Barbecue. Third, Strip Mall in Suburbia. Fourth... <laughs> <laughs> You're four blocks from a transit stop. And five, the best coffee in the city is right downstairs. 
And Chelsea, this movie left me with a thirst for Hugh Grant. It gets a 1.5. Wow. <laughs> I know. I ranked this one really low, but I just didn't I didn't like it. I'm shocked. I'm 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 giving it a two. Oh wow. It's not it's not a good movie. It's not one that I enjoyed watching, but it didn't anger me the way that other ones have. Um, it's That's just fair. kind of very passive. It was boring with some stuff that was entertaining thrown into the mix. Yeah, I think I hate to just give it a 1.5 because it has Hugh Grant and he was great and it has Julie Roberts and she's Julie Roberts and the comedy was really good. But I think that this movie could ultimately be made into like a super cut of 30 minutes and it would be fine. There's so much of this movie that's just wasted. I don't even know what's happening during it. I don't know why this movie was two hours long. It did not need to be that long. Not at all. Yeah, I think my fixes would just be, let's remove the initial breakup with the Baldwin cameo. I don't think that it's necessary. I think you could make that breakup even simpler by pointing out that she just has to leave London. She can't stay. You know, have her get called away for press or for work and have her be like, sorry, I can't do long distance. It won't work. Yeah, I agree. Do we, do we really need two breakup scenes? That makes her seem unlikable because first she's a liar and then the second time around, I think keeping the, that second breakup is perfect because it kind of shows he doesn't get it. That's why I give this movie a 1.5. All right. Fair enough. It, look, we didn't rate it nicely, either of us. It's not a very watchable no. movie. I'm just surprised that I rated it lower than you. You know... I think this season there have been a number of things you've rated lower than me. Am I getting more critical? Or are you are you rubbing off on me? And I'm like, actually, maybe I don't like this as much as I thought I did. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. You know what? I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write out Notting Hill, the sapphic version with Cameron Esposito. <laughs> As the romantic lead, as Hugh Grant's character, and maybe I'll get back into rom-coms. Honestly, I think that should be our next creative project. Perfect. Not in A Blade to the Heart. Oh my god. A Blade to the Heart was honestly the best idea ever. I'm shocked that no one has contacted us for it yet. At least no one we can name. Well, of course. I mean, we did sign that NDA. All right, Chelsea. Well, if they want to tell us that we got anything wrong, where should they do that? Well, they could send a note to loveitforscreening at gmail.com or they could send us a DM on Instagram at loveitforscreening where every week following the most recent episode, we have a poll asking questions like, I don't know because I didn't still haven't done the poll for this <laughs> because I was sick. <laughs> yeah, I want it noted that Chelsea's recovering from a plague, so don't expect so much from us. <laughs> oh, uh, there will be a very, a very titillating question. You know, it really gets 
heat under your seat. You just have to vote. Exactly. Because voting is the basis of democracy. Exactly. Exactly. That and direct action if your legislators refuse to acknowledge the problems once you vote them in. Well, Madison, what are we watching next time? Gosh, Chelsea, what a good question. I actually think that we're watching something you've never seen before, Madison. That explains why I can't remember what we're watching. And it is finally time for the Cynic's Choice episode of season two. I have selected a film called The Feels from 2017. It's a sapphic rom-com starring Constance Wu, who everyone will know from Fresh Off the Boat and Crazy Rich Asians. And we're going to have a lot of fun with this one. Currently streaming on Hulu as of recording this. Well, Chelsea, I'm so excited for that. I get to take a back seat next week because gosh knows that I spend so much time and effort in deep preparation for this every week. (laughs) No, that's a lie, my friends. But that is all to say that I'm very excited and I can't wait. Well, once again, we are Love It for Screening. We are here every Wednesday talking about all the rom-coms you love, love to hate, and everything in between. So, until next time.